welcome to Maiden Speech. My name is Monica Ferguson, portrait photographer and self-love advocate from New Zealand. Each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to uplift and empower you. Thanks for hanging out. Now let's get into it. Boom. Okay. My guest today, Mid Thomas Sevilla. Hello. How are you? Hello. I'm good, thank you. Oh man, <laughs> thank I'm you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I had to have I had to have you. <laughs> last last weekend, watching you stand in front of a room full of people and share so courageously with such conviction your honest truth. Honestly, I was sitting there in a pub on a Saturday night crying. Even <laughs> and I was just like, this that honestly I take my head off to you. It was okay so inspiring to watch someone be so vulnerable and so raw and use it as a way to serve others and I think you're incredible so thank you so much yeah look it wasn't it's it's been an interesting journey because obviously I'm in campaign land and you you are you because this is my first time running for council you do think to yourself especially when you see some of the other stuff that's been going on in the background and and you see how politics plays a part. And I've really tried hard to just stick with who I am, stick with the skills that I bring. And, I, and that's why I talk about the fact that I've got over 20 years of business and I've done a bunch of stuff in that space and I've got a real appetite for academia. Don't tell anybody. But I'm <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I desperately want to finish my PhD. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, that's not going to happen until I'm older. Anyway, until I'm a real grown-up. Um, and then, of course, so there's, there's, there's the strategy side to me, there's the business side to me, and then, of course, there's my heart. And, and I am so I am so of the elk that you've got to be authentic to you. So it was actually really, it was quite hard for me last week to bring out that subject because I, I walked into, and for those that are listening, essentially, my background is I had, I had quite a horrific abusive upbringing and so and I do I spent many many years hugging trees doing counseling doing whatever I could to make sense of what happened to me and then where I found the most powerful space to heal was by helping others and so I've just made a lifetime commitment to do that so I can't really say that I have a big altruistic desire to create change if people don't truly understand where that comes from so I have to be honest, I, I walked into the pub last Sunday night and I went, oh, <laughs> there's children here. And, you know, like it, it definitely wasn't a setting that I would typically go, you know, because I run courses for, for, I run courses for people doing, you know, public speaking. And one of the things is know your audience. So, of course, it goes against <laughs> everything. <laughs> you know, it's not the subject that you bring about, which is why I thought, how can I, in a tasteful way, explain where I've where I've been. So, and I sort of said to Martine, I said, Martine, I'd actually prepped to say some pretty big stuff. She said, Do it, just do it, <laughs> in true Martine style. So, it's always a, it's always a tough one because whenever you, you know, it's interesting as a society, we're quite comfortable talking about, um, you know, drug abuse or or alcoholics or even um, domestic violence to a certain degree. When I say comfortable, we don't like it, but we're okay to talk about it. As soon as you say sexual, everyone closes up and gets a bit cringy. And you feel that as a person who's been through it. So, yeah, it isn't – I've spent the last 20-odd years being open and honest, you know, starting from the ripe old age of 17 when my grandmother made us do a story in the Women's Weekly. So – that wow. was, um, yeah, so that was actually the first time that we came public. And I'm lucky to be in a family where they never hit it. You know, it wasn't chucked under the cover. So I actually, I was able to heal. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a bit crazy. But yes, it was a big moment last weekend. <laughs> yeah. Especially in the campaign world. Mm. Mm. But I guess that's a huge point of difference, isn't it? Because actually, like you say, it needs to, it needs to be that people need to be able to trust you and you need to go first. Like yeah. if you want people to trust you, they need to, yeah. know, they need to understand yeah. that you're human. Yeah. And you're not exactly. just a polished, perfect person. No, no. you're, you're no. coming from years of experience and, and you understand yeah. what's going on in the community because honestly, the conversations that I get to have on here, it's like all the stuff that, that people are dealing with and we're just not talking yeah. about it. And yeah. yet it's a massive problem, you know, and like, 
I know. Mental health yeah. awareness week this week and looking at our stats even from last year to this year and suicide has gone up 13% in New Zealand in yeah. one year. Yeah. And it's like, why? like there's something wrong. Like why can't we just open yeah. up dialogues? Exactly. And I think that's, and that for me is, you know, there's, I've heard a lot of people say in their campaigning journey that they want to, you know, um, they want to increase uh, work on the inequities. They want to, help when it comes to suicide they want to do all this stuff first piece to it is being authentic in relationship to your own experience in that space and i'm not saying that you have to have experience in that space to be able to help it but what i am saying is when you when you understand when people somebody once said to me how did you end up where you ended up and what i mean by that is i could have easily been part of the 97 percent that don't get through you know how did you get to the other side and I'll tell you a little story actually I mean I, and I mentioned this in my last video I do quite, I've done quite a lot of work with the police and um there's an incredible woman who I forged a, a friendship through and and so I go and have a have a talk to young girls that are essentially in the system right now either prosecuting or about to or have prosecuted the person that has um impacted on their life anyway she organised for me to go and visit a young girl at Arohata Prison. Mm-hmm. And and it was one of those moments where I went and I said to this young girl, I said, I could have easily been you and you can easily be me. And oh, um goes by Yeah, it was yeah. yeah. I know it was super it was a powerful moment and 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 me and this other policewoman, we, we both say the same thing. If it wasn't if it wasn't for just a couple of key decisions we made when we were younger, our paths would have could have gone down a significantly different route. And it's one of the reasons why I love Les Mills. You know, I, I you know, whether you're a Les Mills fan or not, I adore this company because it literally has helped me from the time I was a kid, you know, a 15-year-old girl who's completely broken and had no confidence to being the woman that you can't see right now. If I hadn't had that stable thing in my life, and for me it was Les Mills, for other people it, it might be religion, for others it might be family, it, you know, as long as there is just a thing that just keeps you like a little rock through the tough times, mm. um, you end up coming back into, into the right space. So, so yeah, so there's been some powerful moments like that for me, and um, and I do think that I have quite a strategic mind as well, or I did quite well at university in that space, and I do think that I bring a bunch of acumen in relationship to business, but I do think where as a public servant I'll be able to fulfil what I believe is my destiny, is where I can help others completely and ultrasonally. Yeah. 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 Cool. So what kind of work are you doing at the moment in terms of volunteer work and that sort of thing? So it's mostly with the police. Um, in fact, it's all with the police, to be fair. So I, it's a program. Basically what happens is they take these young girls away and it's a three-day program. And during that program, I come in and I tell my story. But how I, how I unfold the story is I tell them about my amazing life today. So, yeah. you know, I've got husband that's always a good start <laughs> some children who are very beautiful and wonderful and I've had an incredible career with Les Mills traveled the world you know I've got some I've got a couple of successful businesses that my husband runs and I'm a partner in another business uh, so I've done all these really cool things and I and basically I make myself sound pretty goddamn awesome to be fair and then I just tell them that I was sexually abused and as soon as that bombshell hits and they realize that at their age I was them and I didn't think that I was any good and I felt dirty and I felt like I was never going to make anything of myself and I felt like it was my fault and I felt all those not feelings that you feel uh, as soon as they saw that that is who I am but that's who I become you just have hope you know, I, they get hope. And as soon as a person has hope, then that's when they can start to scaffold their own life because without it, it's just darkness. And without hope, you're left in this world where you can't, you can't see a way out. And, it, and it's very similar to somebody who's in that suicidal space. There's no way out. 
you know, for them, they don't have hope. And I guess, you know, when I think about my journey, it's being that one person that said, Mid, I believe in you, or Mid, I know you can do this, or Mid, you've got the capability, or Mid, I know that you'll be able to work through this, or my husband, who has just sporadically through my life just been a rock that has just been this immobile rock that, you know, good or bad, through the through the, through the hard and the, and the easy times he was there. So... I guess that's part of it. And then I've also done a few a few talks to some young children who had been on the wrong side of, of the law and they'd done some things that meant that meant that they were making some bad decisions in their life. And I guess when I'm in those spaces, I don't have any judgment on them. Yeah. And I don't I don't talk about, you know, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. I talk about here's my life. Here's how my life was parallel to yours. Mm-hmm. And here's the decisions that I made and here's the life I had today. And you have that same power. Because often they don't think they have. I didn't think I did, you know. And it was just it was just that there was a handful of people around me that was able to give me that. So now I feel that it gives me an opportunity to give that to them. On top of that, I do rotary. I love my little rotary group and we plant trees, do some cool stuff for the world, which is fabulous. And, and I mean, I think if anyone has an opportunity to get involved with a rotary group, it's really worth it because their single focus is to do good and to help our people and to help our, our world. So, yeah, so that's sort of what I do in my spare time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you have any spare time by the sounds of it. <laughs> Yeah, man, I just love what you're talking about, how, you know, we can, you, you find healing within yourself by helping others. And yes. I so strongly relate to that because that's exactly what happened to me when I was, you know, early twenties, really struggling, depression, anxiety, suicidal stuff, yeah. I worked on mental health and supporting other people to be well. It's like yeah. you can't be in a state of unwellness when you're focused on wellness. When you're focused yeah, exactly. on wellness, you can't be ungrateful and depressed while you're focused on, you know, it's so, so exactly. powerful. So yeah. I'm curious, so how, how old were you when all this stuff happened to you? So I was, I was eight. Well, it, there was probably a few things that happened when I was younger, but eight is probably my first real memory of, what happened to me and it was my adopted father that um, did what he did to me and unfortunately the sad piece in that is that he'd obviously had something happen to him and he was essentially you know playing out um, in his adult life and yeah and so that went on for about 10 years so it was um yeah it was pretty horrific and even when it came out it was a bit of it was an accident how it even came out to be fair yeah. Uh, I was actually at high school and I was in seventh form. And I think the teachers had noticed that things weren't right. And I was so good at pretending that things were great, which is, you know, really common for somebody who's going through what I was going through. So my home life was pretty, was really bad. And I just made sure that my school life was really amazing. But I was struggling to keep that, that, that bravado up. And... <clears throat> My mum, one of the things that you, as you go through the journey of understanding, because I have a a real simple ethos that says you've got to find understanding to create acceptance to find forgiveness. So I don't know if I read that somewhere, but that's been how I've been able to resolve the challenges in my life. And so I had to understand why he did what he did to me to be able to accept it and then to understand and, and find a way to forgive. Um, because if I live with any hate or malice towards him, then I carry that in my life. So I've worked really hard to not let that live in me. Yeah. Anyway, so essentially what happened is at the time I had, I had, I, I was at a high school, which, so I went to Rangara High School in my sixth form. Back in my days, it was called sixth form. <laughs> Yeah. I think they call it year 12 now. <laughs> so I went to Rangira High School in my sixth form and I did really well. And within that year, I ended up becoming deputy head girl in my, in my year 13, which was my seventh form year. And, you know, all of this was to keep up this image so that nobody ever looked too close at what was going on at home. And, you, you know, you, I guess for me, I, I, I come from that 
nobody in the world would have thought it, but then some people started to notice weird behaviour and they, not so much from me, but they noticed that my doctor father was always packing me up after school and it was just, it was an odd, they could sense that there was an oddness about it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my mum and I, he had actually, he had done what is quite typical, which is divide and conquer. So my mother and I, even though we lived in the same house, we literally had nothing to do with each other. And there's horrific stories that I could tell you that are just not even worth going into. But essentially, he'd got me to believe that my mum was the reason why this was all happening to me. And, you know, as they do in their kind of in their manipulative, unhealthy Mental, mentally unhealthy way yeah. and so finally my mum sat me down and he'd gone away he was a shearer so he'd gone away for a couple of weeks which never really happened I was never left alone I was never allowed to do anything with my friends I just it was, I was in a really controlled environment and my mum sat me down and um, she just said you know this man had been um, beating her up and she was fearful that he had potentially started to do stuff to my other sister. And I thought I was protecting my family. So, yeah. It's, I guess, so, it's so much. Yeah. So much. Yeah. So and so I guess it, yeah, no, that's fine. I guess in that moment I realised that I couldn't protect them because I thought I was protecting my other sister. And, I, and, and to be fair, my mum was like, we've got to get out. And I, and I still couldn't tell her. And I said, yeah, yeah, we do. And, of course, I still wanted to finish my bursary exams, so, which is crazy. So I said, okay, well, I said, Mum, you go with the kids and I'll stay, knowing there was nothing more that he could do to me. You know, I couldn't, the worst thing he could do would be to kill me, and quite frankly, at that point in my life, it would have been a, a relief. Yeah. Anyway, so I went to the school and I really wish I, I, the one thing I do hope is one day I get to meet this see this counsellor again. I went to the school and as I did, I, did, I put on my normal, you know, mid um, bravado, here's my story that the world will believe. And essentially, I went to my um, full teacher and I said, Oh, listen, my mum's just disclosed to me some stuff and um, I'll need to move to Wellington with my family can I sit my bursary exams in Wellington because they were only a month away and um anyway so what ended up happening was um waving at people as they go past um <laughs> the door and I'm trying not to cry <laughs> why is that gym manager crying um anyway so I the 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 form teacher at the time didn't do anything he just went okay can you come with me and I went yeah okay it's fine Anyway, so he took me straight to the counsellor and um, I explained the same story, very feasible, you know, my family, we just found out that this is happening, my mum needs to get me and the children to my grandmother in Wellington, can I sit my bursary exams in Wellington? And the counsellor at the school took a huge risk and, um, you know, I now know after doing some courses in this space, uh, that he took, he, you know, you have a risk when you ask somebody straight out they could just close down and they're gone forever but in this instant instance he asked me and it caught me so off guard because I thought that my story was really feasible that I just broke down and, and he just came out and said is your father sexually abusing you and I bawled and cried and then of course because it was it happened at school the rest sort of takes care of itself my mum was amazing she never blamed me once and that's huge you know and that's really hard and I've seen my mum <coughs> suffer quite a bit. Anyway, long story short, fortunately or unfortunately for me, uh, my um, my abuser admitted to everything and he was prosecuted um, and got sentenced uh, for 10 years for what he did to me. Yeah. And to be fair, it was once you're out of it, the hard piece is piecing your life back together afterwards. So... Um, there was a relief that I wasn't living this life anymore, but then it was trying to figure out how I live a life after it because it's all that I knew. So it was quite a, yeah, it was quite a, a tough time, but that's how it came out. And I do consider myself super lucky because had that not come out at that point in my life, I don't know how long it would have taken me to for it to come out, number one, and how much destruction it would have caused in my life 
because it hadn't come out. Yeah. You see, when it when it comes out and when you can finally tell someone and when you can finally bring it out into the open, as hard as that is, and it is so hard, and it's, it's like opening up this big hideous wound, what it does mean, though, is you can start to heal. Yeah. And that healing journey is long. It, it can be very, very long. I mean, for me, it many years to one find a reason and my children were my reason to really escalate my healing but at the same time it's getting out it's talking about it it's 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 finding ways to make yourself not feel like it's your shame to carry and now you know 20 20 a few years later (laughs) um, you know I, I can they're still definitely hurt there when I remember those moments. But at the same time, I'm I'm so grateful that I guess my soul with my resilience has been able to go through that because I've helped so many people, you know. And I wouldn't be the human I am today if I hadn't been through that experience. And I don't hold hate for my abuser either because he was a victim in himself. Um, he made his choices to then go on to abuse others and uh, he will in his own way have to find a way to live with that. But for me personally, I don't know what happened in his world or who was in his world and I don't need to know, but I do know that he had something happen to him and unfortunately that's the cycle with sexual abuse. And the saddest piece in my story is my story is not uncommon. So one in three girls in New Zealand and one in four boys. And those are of people who have come forward. That's not people that haven't come forward. So it's a story that has to be told. And it's something that we have to do something about. And it's not incarcerating people. It's not hurting more. It's actually finding ways to educate and help young people understand what is right, what is wrong. And then at the same time, giving people the power to be able to talk about it. And that's why I've committed to saying what I've been through because if I don't say what I've been through and, you know, like if you walk into a, if you if you come across a, a person and, and they've had some, you know, challenges in their life and they say, oh, yeah, my mum was an alcoholic. People are like, oh, that must be hard for you. But it's not awkward. And like I said at the beginning, but if you go into a conversation, you go, oh, yeah, no, my, my dad, you know, or my mum or my auntie or my uncle, yeah, they sexually abuse me. You just don't have those conversations. People yeah. don't feel comfortable. And I'm not saying that you should, but I am saying that in order for the shame to go, we've got to, as a society, actually accept that this stuff is happening and then make a commitment to try and to try and um, help it heal. And the only way to heal that kind of stuff is to actually bring it out in the open. Because mm. as soon as it's out in the open, people have to, to heal. So, yeah, it's a really, it's a tough one. It's a real tough one. And it's, and someone once said to me, because a friend of mine, she goes, oh, man, you just attract all the people that have been sexually abused. And I was like, no, it's just that I am open about it and I give them permission to have a voice because they're all the people that are around you right now. They just don't feel that they can say anything to you. Or worse than that, they don't they don't think it's that bad. Or, oh, it's just, oh, I'll get over it. Or, you know, oh, it just happened. I was a little bit intoxicated. I was a little bit drunk. I was p- partly my fault. Or, you know, all of those stories that are played out and young people today, and I hear it, and I'm like, oh, it's just not. In today's world, we should be, we should be better than we than what we are, you know. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind yeah. of a big story. <laughs> I think I'll just pick up my jaw off the floor and then gather my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, that's it's massive, but that's so true. Like the thing is, even and I love that example about you attracting everyone because honestly, even since I started talking about things like self worth, depression, anxiety everyone's just starting to talk to me about it. Cause it's like, you give it, yeah. you, you just take off the taboo. You take off the stigma. It's yeah. like, we all struggle with stuff. Let's just talk about it. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And you can just accept that you're a leader and that actually, yeah. for whatever reason, you and I are able to talk about these things. Amazing. So it's kind of our duty to do it. Right. And yeah. then yeah. And so what's, what's interesting. And I just keep thinking about listening to, you, I just keep thinking vulnerability. Like yeah. how, 
Yeah, and just watching you the other night, honestly, just how how courageous to put yourself in that such a vulnerable state. And like you say, because if if you had like stood up and said, "Man, I struggled with depression and anxiety," people would have gone, "Oh yeah," but no sexual yeah. abuse. It's like no one knows what to do, right? Like no one knows. Yeah. What to do. <laughs> they don't. Anyone gets all like, awkward. You want to hug? Like how can I? Yeah. But that's yeah. so true that. Even now, we're getting to the point, I guess, in our society where yeah, we have these movements around mental health and stuff yeah. like that, where it's becoming acceptable to talk about, I'm really struggling with anxiety, I am, you know, I am hope, and all that kind of stuff. But yes. it's, this is such an eye-opening conversation, because that's it. What yeah. is it for, for people who have been through this experience? How can yeah. we make it more acceptable? How can we make it safe for people to have a conversation? Where do they yeah. go? No, exactly. And, and that's the hard, that is the hard piece because, I mean, there's, a, you know, obviously there's your, your normal route, there's, you know, go to your doctor, but, you know, go to a professional. And then there's a whole bunch of services that obviously is in there to support victims and there is, there's, there's plenty of services. Then And there's victim support groups and there's a lot of stuff that you can do and, but it does feel like, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I used to do counselling in, in Wellington. So I saw a counsellor and, of course, because, you know, it's all ACC accredited, so you can only go to a certain counsellor, which is fine. And this lady was like, so I, now I taught group fitness at Taranaki Street. So I was a group fitness, I've been, you know, with Les Mills forever. So I was teaching a class at Taranaki Street. This is when I was like early 20s. And I was, back in those days, I was, you know, quite a, strong athletic young lassie and uh come on (laughs) (laughs) well I had way better knees back in those days (laughs) and uh I literally would go into Taranaki Street and I'd go and teach my classes and I you know people would see me as this amazing instructor that would teach these amazing body attack classes and everyone would be inspired and have a great workout And then I would just quietly and try and see if anyone could see me and I'd crawl into the next door and hope that nobody saw me going into the counsellor because I still felt so shameful about that. And I'd crawl into the counsellor and I'd do my little counselling session and I'd have my little cry and whatever issues we were dealing with at that time. And then I'd come out the door and I'd pray to God that no one would see me. And even at one point, I remember being at a gym and I won't say what gym it was. It wasn't from these mills, um, but I was working at a gym and we'd just done the article in the Women's Weekly about how sexual abuse is generational and how it affected my great-grandmother and my mother and me in, in different ways. And so this article had been done in the Women's Weekly and I was working at this gym and the gym manager at the time came up to me and he goes, oh, look, I saw this article and I didn't think you'd want the members to see it. So I put them all out the back so no one can see the article. You know, I mean, at this stage, I mean, I'm jumping a little bit all over the place, but at this stage, I'm like 18, 19, I'm a kid. You know, and when you hear that, it's just like, or or if you hear things like, oh, love, we don't talk about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, we just get over that. Oh, you know, that kind of You know, it's that, it's those conversations that, that drive drive it, internal and the worst one is our boys because it does happen to our boys but our boys are the ones that are least likely to say that it's happened to them and our boys are the ones that are are least likely to even know it's happened to them more often than not when it does happen to a boy because physically they respond they're left in this position where they don't even know if what happened to them was good or bad they just feel yuck about it and it and they don't know how to process that they don't know who to talk to in that space. So, you know, for our boys, I'm not saying that it's worse because it's, it's bad on both counts, but for them, they who do they talk to? How do they find camaraderie in this manly, yeah, 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 culture and yet they've had this stuff happen to them? So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very – I'm not a psychologist. Um, I, did a, I did a very minimalistic um, – I did some papers on the side um, in, in psychology, but it wasn't enough to give me you know, a whole bunch of information or be a, an expert in this field. But what I can say is the people that I've talked to in this space, they, they struggle. And they struggle in ways that females don't because females will find other females to talk to if they start to come out. So it's coming out and it's having the conversation. 
then it's finding ways. And, and there isn't, a, you know, there still isn't, there's definitely movements like what the police is doing in terms of the programs that they're putting in place for these young women is amazing. And, I mean, I, I can't, this is not a fact, but I do believe that a lot of the, a lot of our social issues that we face in society, if we dig deep and if we go back to the root cause in children, you'll often find there's some dysfunction like this that has set about a path of mistrust or anger or, and the list goes on. And quite often, I, I went to a, um, I did a talk um, once, I did a, uh, I was a speaker at the police college because like I said, that's probably where I've done most of my work. And they had another, they had me there, I was the victim person and then they had somebody who was the perpetrator and his side of the story as well. And part of his story was, you know, he, he was a reformed perpetrator. I mean, I think he, he had um, beaten his wife and he was very angry and had some real violent tendencies. But in, even in his story, he goes, what people forget is that I was once a victim first. Yeah. So he was sexually abused. He had been beaten. You know, he was a victim before he was an angry guy. And then he just became, his, his behaviour, his domestic violence was off the back of this of this stuff here and you actually thought you know so I, I sometimes think we look at the we look at the surface issues but we're not looking at the root cause yeah. and if we actually go a bit deeper we'll find that there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there that you know and we try to fix this problem without truly understanding the, the complexities of the actual issue that each person is facing and I know how complex my issues have been and how I've had to deal with multitude of issues over the years from trust through to my own sexuality through to figuring out, you know, what boundaries even look like in that space, you know, um, mm. figuring out how do I have, you know, how do I even have the conversation with my children about this stuff? And then how do I not become that weird overprotective parent? And, and then, you know, how, why is it that I can't have a, a relationship you know all of those things that you suffer from when you've been through so when somebody who you who you're supposed to trust you know takes advantage of you so yeah it's a huge you know and I don't think that if I'm to get onto council tomorrow <laughs> that I'm going to be able to fix all those things in the DHB but you know I definitely know that if I if I at least start to move in that space then I'll have an opportunity to start conversations and to see what we can do and where we can go in that space and I'll have a I'll have an opportunity to do that and and it is a it's a lifelong passion for me. So you know, it's not yeah. something I'm gonna stop tomorrow. So yeah, one way or another. Yeah. So in your dream dream scenario, what would you love yes. to happen for victims? In my dream scenario, what I'd love for victims is for them to not feel like a victim. Yeah. Yeah. And for them to feel like they can live and deserve the life of their dreams. I've watched my grandmother who has had moments of being really strong, but essentially has lived, you know, lived quite a victim life. My mother's lived a victim life. And it's, it's been the reason why I've tried so hard to not live that life and to live a strong life. And, you know, it's the reason why I do things like I meditate as much as I can to keep the way that I think positive and, and, I, and I, when I am having to deal with issues or when I've got stuff that's come up in my world, I work really hard to understand them just like, and I guess you work 10 times as hard to understand the issues because you need to just because if you don't, you know, it could, it could significantly affect you. I was raised a Catholic, so, you know, I, and I, you know, I'm still a Catholic and I still, I don't, I'm not a very good practicing Catholic, but I do, you know, I, <laughs> I was, um, and I, and it was, I, I, it was my faith that probably helped me through the really tough times when I was younger, but it's the single reason why I didn't try and commit suicide when I was younger, because I was so, you know, I was such a believer and, you know, in the, in the Catholic faith that I thought, oh God, if I commit suicide, I'm going to go to hell and I'm already living in hell. I don't want to go somewhere else. So it was the only thing that actually kept me alive all those years, because to be honest with you, as a victim, you just don't feel like you're worth anything. You don't feel like you have a reason. Um, and most people feel like that generally when they're young. So they're like, oh, what's my purpose? Where do I go? How do I do it? It's really hard for them. Just just being a teenager is hard. 
layering abuse, layering trust issues, layering you know, poverty, layering all of those things, and you've got a recipe, you've got a disaster happening. Now, I had, fortunately, whether people believe in God or not, I had God, you know. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Yeah, and it, and it worked, you know, in the end. So, yeah. So I always have that thing that I go back to. And like I said, I'm not a very good practicing Catholic at all. Uh, in fact, to be fair, I normally only attend church on Jesus' birthday. Um, <laughs> but it was definitely the thing that got me through it. And it, and it scares me because that's what helped me when I was younger. But I look at young people today and there's so many that don't have a faith. And I'm not saying that you have to be religious, but just have a, a belief that there's something bigger and greater than you that you can attach yourself to that has a that you can trust in you know whether it be the universe whether it be you know you're a buddhist or a muslim or whatever it might be it's just that it's some of our young people that are lost are lost because they just don't have a thing that sits outside of them they think their world is their world and that's it and there's just so much more to our world well there's so much more we don't even understand so you know yeah yeah Yes, I could talk for Africa and back again. <laughs> I love this stuff. And honestly, this is a topic that I am very interested in as well. Because same for you, this was a massive part of my healing journey was having faith. And and I was chatting to my friend the other day about, you know, we were trying to solve all the world's problems as you do. And and she said, Well, what do you think the biggest problem is? And I exactly that. That that no one like we don't have a sense of belonging or or purpose that so many people just think that this is all there is and that why so how how could you get through these things if you don't believe that for a reason or that and I just honestly I keep hearing Zarine in my head from our previous podcasts about stories and the way that you know the way that we make sense of things and understand things and yeah so much of myself in your story in terms of getting to that point that you can forgive and and start and remember that hurt people hurt ultimately Um, yeah. and it's because actually that anger just eats us alive anyway and it stops us yeah. from becoming something bigger and serving more people yeah. and greater impact. Yeah, oh, exactly. It's so amazing, honestly. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> so t- talk to me about when all, so all this stuff happened. Yeah. We went to jail. Yes, yep, yep, yep. Begin. In terms of your, where did you begin in terms of healing, starting to heal, starting to build yourself back up? <sighs> So I was in Christchurch uh, and, you know, I managed to get into law school just off the back of all of this hideous stuff. Unfortunately, like it's, it's crazy, but even though I went through all of that, I had, there's all these other issues that I faced as well. So of course, went to law school and, you know, immediately was faced with racism. So I was told pretty much straight away. So here is this young girl who's gone through all this stuff, turn up. And the lecturer, the dean actually at the time, turned around to me and said, um, oh, look, people like you don't often make it. <sighs> One of the first conversations. Oh. Then I remember going to my first lecture and then basically talking about how much money it was going to cost for me to become a lawyer once I finished my degree, that I'd have to go and spend another five years just working in a law firm and then et cetera, et cetera, and all this, you know. And all I saw was money that I'd never had money that wasn't even a thing that was possible in my life so I ended up I ended up not completing law school at all that's to be fair I didn't even last the first year tried doing sociology actually I tried to I actually went to I thought I'd do religious studies well that was stupid um (laughs) because it was like telling somebody that Santa wasn't real and I really didn't enjoy that at all so because it was the academic side of religious studies that was basically pulling the Bible to bits and back again. So that wasn't fun for me at all. So very bad, bad, um, bad subject choice. Uh, long story short, I ended up, I was very, very, very broken, very confused, didn't know what I was doing. And then essentially I just, I, I just flaked out of university. My my grandparent, my grandmother and my mother really wanted me to shift to Wellington. I was still a bit crushed. And so I finally gave in and I shifted to Wellington and and I actually did uh, an advanced diploma of performing arts. Now, um, the funny thing about that was I really had no desire to be an actor at all, <laughs> at all. I did like, I loved singing, I loved music, I loved, I loved that stuff. And I did 
there was a piece of me that really enjoyed performing on stage. I, I'd sung country westerns for the kid and all this kind of stuff. And you'll still get a good tune if you come to my RPM class. I'll sing a few notes from time to time. <laughs> anyway, so I had I decided to do the performing arts course, and I, I guess what that did for me it was the start of a healing journey. And it was it's kind of like and you see it in musicians how they pour their hurt and their pain into their creativity, and that's essentially what I did. So. I um, ended up pouring me into my art and I did some pretty dark monologue, <laughs> which I don't think, I think it probably 10 people saw. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was fine. It was more about me sort of dealing with my dark issues anyway. But then off the back of that, I got a job off doing my um, diploma. I got a job at Fitidea, uh on a course called Takukane, which was a course for young people between the ages of sort of 14 to 18 that had fallen off the school system, that had been essentially through what I'd been through, so they'd had really tough lives. And we used drama as a means to build self-confidence. Now, that was probably the first significant moment where I realised that I can help others. Mm-hmm. And and then, of course, helping these young kids and trying to help them find a little bit of confidence in themselves, uh, even though I was still going through my own journey, was the start of it. And I found that the more people I talked to about what I'd been through, I seemed to help them as much as they helped me. Like it was almost like a little piece of me came back every time I told my story. I'd cry every time I told my story. So I've done quite well to just tear up a few times today. I'd cry every time I told my story and I'd be quite emotional. They'd be emotional. They'd share their story. We'd cry. We'd do a bit of healing. But it was often I was the first person these people were disclosing to and then and then we would go through the whatever process they needed to go through. During this time, I was doing counselling. Um, I also read, funnily enough, the Celestine Prophecy, so I decided to hug trees just a little bit. So <laughs> hug trees and get energy from trees rather than energy from humans, rather than fight and take energy off one another, give energy to each other by, you know, allowing us to be part of this amazing universe. So I did, so I kind of, even though I was following traditional healing things like counselling, I was also trying alternative ways to figure out things. And then on top of that, meditation and that and, and that kind of mindfulness hadn't really, was not a thing 20-something years ago. But for some reason, my grandmother had all these, and I'm not kidding, VHS tapes and cassette tapes. What's that? Of, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> People are like, what is that? That's something they used in the 1800s. Yes. <laughs> and so she had all these tapes of like, of like music and meditation stuff, but it wasn't meditation stuff. It was just like a compilation of sea music. And I spent a lot of time on the beach and I spent a lot of time writing lots of songs and I wrote lots of poems and um, I, just, I just poured me into the world still I call the 20s my dark ages to be fair my early 20s because I still very much didn't love me at all in fact I didn't like me at all and had I again like I said had I not had that faith had I not had that absolute belief in my religion I would have probably not been around and many nights I'd go to bed going you know praying to God that he'd take me because I'm just done in this world I can't I didn't have the energy to keep going. And that's often how you feel. You're just tired. You're sick of feeling like there's this big dark cloud all over you all the time. There was no such thing as antidepressants in those days, not for us. It wasn't a thing you did. So I didn't have that. I had exercise, which was probably the best thing for me. And luckily for me, I didn't try drugs. So alcohol, because I was always doing like a Miss Fitness competition or something like that. So it was it was... I'm very lucky that I didn't go down the drugs and alcohol route. It's not alcohol appeared in my life sort of around the early 30s and um, I kind of had a reboot into teenage world during that time because I didn't do anything when I was a teenager. But, yeah, it was still – I was very fortunate I had fitness. I was fortunate that I had people around me that allowed me to disclose and I committed to trying to work on myself um, even though I was in these dark days. And then to be fair, the biggest thing that happened to me is I got pregnant at 24 and, and it wasn't a, by no means a planned pregnancy. It was a whoops, what just happened? And then what just happened was twins. Yeah. <laughs> so whoops, twins. Okay, good. <laughs> it was definitely a bigger plan for me. So I had my children when I, when I was 25 and they literally were 
my decisive moment, that was my turning point. And yeah, I I always say this to them and they're like, oh my God, mommy's so weird. Um, <laughs> I'm like, you, you guys saved my life because it's at that moment I went, I want my children to have everything. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty lucky to have two great kids and yeah, I love them dearly and they're now 19. So, and it was actually having them that I went, this is my reason. Mm. I just went on a really massive journey to get myself right and I did whatever it took to get myself right. And I made decisions that I might not have made in relationship to getting and always thinking in my head, I've got to work through my stuff. I've got to believe in me. I've got to find a way to, to mentally shape my mind so that it's strong, it's resilient, it's, it's, um, and it empowers and inspires others. And that's just, and even now, it's, it's what's dictated my journey. You know, I always go, oh, look, here's a really scary thing. Oh, that must mean I have to do it. Um, <laughs> I don't go, here's, yeah, here's a really, yeah. And it's, you know, and it was the same with the council. Like even going for the council, I kind of was like, oh, do I do this? And everything in me screamed, yes, even though I was, you know, I had to make the decision to not be with Les Mills, which broke my heart. But I knew that if I'm to truly fulfill my potential, then I've it's these moments in time that you've got to forage. So I've never, so I've always said to my children, essentially, live your life to the fullest. Fulfill your potential, whatever that looks like. And it doesn't matter if your potential means that you are, you know, whatever in life it is, as long as you're happy and you find fullness in it. And you're okay to make mistakes. So, um, yeah. so yeah, so that's kind of a... I've had a, the journey's been long and there's always been significant moments throughout my life but the things that keep bringing me back to me is I always seek understanding is and that's the probably the power the powerful piece for me because when you understand something the good the bad and the ugly when you actually un- understand an issue in its entirety then you can actually create acceptance around it you can go okay well that makes sense as to why that person has behaved that way and it's no different people are asking me questions around council and and I'm saying exactly the same thing we need to understand why that why that happened you know lots of you know classic example let's talk about the um the good old five-star motel that everybody's quite upset about and there's been a bit of palaver around it you know my first thing is understand that issue why was it that the council decided to buy that land in the first place? What was the purpose behind that? Because I'm sure they didn't all set out to just spend ratepayers' money willy-nilly. I don't think that's the intention of council at all. I think the intention would have been that they wanted to rejuvenate our economy and by doing that, having a five-star hotel in conjunction with the event centre really nicely now unfortunately it didn't roll out the way they wanted it to which has led to the issues that we've got today but it is about understanding it from the very beginning and I guess because I've had to understand issues really highly complex human issues that are in relationship to me it's been actually what's helped me be really successful in my career because that's the first thing I do is somebody says, oh, I've got a problem, okay, help me understand what that problem is. Let me know what does that mean for you. Work me through that. Tell me a little bit more about this. So I really work hard to understand the actual issue or the root cause because it's when you do that that you can start to put solutions in place. So it's been interesting. Now I'm at the, at the other end of my journey. All of these skills that I've learned through dealing with an abusive upbringing have actually been the powerhouse behind what's catapulted my business careers and it's what's catapulted my ability to make strong decisions and it's you know because of what I've been through this is really ugly stuff so you know oh mid we have a 20k problem here or we have a 20 million dollar problem here it doesn't matter we just have to go through a similar process understand the issue what are we trying to achieve what's the outcome how do we get there? Okay, well, let's do that. Cool. Yay. And then it's just a matter of process. Saying exactly the same ethos of use that this chairman I first got here. There was lots of issues. 
staff felt unloved, members didn't enjoy the place. There was, you know, a feeling that this place wasn't looked after. And so the first thing was, where's the big issue? And let's start with staff. Let's make staff feel valued and engaged. Let's then help teach the staff to feel, help the members feel valued and engaged. Let's ensure that we're running a slick operation and that we're being commercially responsible whilst at the same time offering a great customer experience. You know, so it wasn't I went, right, let's get commercially savvy and have a great customer experience. I went, what's the actual problem? The problem starts with the staff. The staff are unhappy. You know, so it would have been very easy to come in here and go, right, let's make some money and let's do this and let's make this place amazing. Well, actually, that wouldn't have been the right thing to do because I didn't understand the problem I was trying to resolve. So it's, it's an interesting... It's a very long-winded way of describing what I've been through over many years, but I kind of, if, you, if I was to sum, summarise it, I kind of go, dark ages, where yeah. there's just lots of pain, and then, I, and then there's an awakening mm-hmm. when I had my children. Then there's this whole area of dissemination where you're just constantly trying to figure things out, and you're constantly trying to piece things together, and that's the exploration, understanding space then the acceptance, and then the move through. And that's exactly the same process that you use in any complex problems, you know. So, yeah, so it's been a, yeah, it's been a really interesting time for me. And it's, it's why people will say, oh, you know, how are you feeling? And I'm like, oh, I'm great, I'm good. You know? Because I generally am good, you know. There's not, there isn't a moment where I go, oh, I can't deal with this. Or if I, if I am struggling with stuff, I've got a process to go through to help me understand and unpack me. Or I've got support structures in place to help me work through those things. Yeah. And um, in worst case scenario, a good glass of Chardonnay doesn't go astray either. <laughs> <laughs> That's top tip. Chardonnay, you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. My friends will be going, yes, this is true. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Yes. Wow. This, this has been amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing with such honesty. Yeah. Now, I'd love it if you want to let us know where we can find you and support you, how we can support you on your journey. Oh, look, right now, I guess the biggest thing you could do to support me would be to vote, which would be fantastic. And I guess, and I better talk a little bit on what I stand for so people just don't go, oh, that's the abused girl. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> it's not a great brand. <laughs> but um, I guess what, what I would love the constituents of the city to understand is essentially my there are some things in terms of melling melling the walkways over in Eastbourne anything that's central government orientated my stand on that is we just have to continue to lobby we have to we have to continue to really push our regional council to really drive what it is that we need from central government and I think that the current council is probably done a bloody good job in that space to be fair because we wouldn't have got the consent to go ahead with milling so in relationship to those major issues that's where I stand in that space there are definitely some issues that belong at central government I think if local government try and resolve it all we do is we use resources that could be going to things that they should be going to and local local resources should go to local infrastructure is my opinion in that space and infrastructure in terms of making sure that we've got our basics right. I do think the I do think that we need to ensure that <coughs> anything that's a flood risk gets sorted out straight away. I think that's absolutely important and Melling was a big piece in that. Nine I Paul, look let me be brutally honest, it's going to happen, you know, <laughs> like it's just going to happen. And I, I had a look at some financial reports as you do because everything's public, so you can find out anything yourself. You just have to be bothered wading through pages and pages and pages of stuff. But essentially what I discovered was there's $8 million that's in CapEx right now for Nine Opal and that's being deployed into OPEX. Now, from a business perspective, basically that means that $8 million that was supposed to be spent on probably would have been repairs and maintenance and upgrades to Nine Eye Pool has now been taken out of facility spend. So that would be like, for example, I would put I'd put money into the CapEx to rebuild our studio down here. Now that CapEx money has been deployed to operations. So as soon as that happens, my business brain goes, well, that means that they're going to be scoping out and figuring out how, what's the best way to move forward, whether they rebuild or build new. So that'll be the real question. It's not whether or not nine eye pool is going to happen. Nine eye pool will happen, and that's my 
you know, that's my two cents worth. The question that the incoming council is going to have to make is are they going to rebuild? And the figures around that are a 30 million to a 60 million all built new. Remembering that people talk about, oh, it's just going to mean our rates go up, et cetera, et cetera. That's not actually the case. We're actually in, this council is in actually in a good position and relationship to debt and what they can borrow against. And that'll be taken over a period of time. And, and it should be taken over a period of time because it's going to be the periods of people that actually use that facility. So it makes sense that they have a responsibility piece in the, um, in the commercial space. So that's that one. When it comes to the cling fill and Wainui, Wainui cling fill, when it comes to the issues and relationship, well, not issues, but the fact that there's, there's been comments around taking the funds from the Stokes Valley, or the Silverstream, sorry, landfill and ring fencing that to then go into environmental ring fencing the profits. Those are all interesting things. I think in Wainui, what the council has to be better at is they've got to be better at talking to the community. There's got to be more transparency around how they do things. And my opinion on that is actually, I think, where we've got, a, where we've got an opportunity to improve is where council and operations meet. Because what I get a sense of is there's almost like two hands that don't talk to each other. So we've got our governance side, which is our councillors and our mayor, but then when it hits the operations and the operational side have to facilitate that strategy, sometimes that's not actually what's happening. So actually that's a responsibility of the mayor and the councillors to really get under the hood of the car and understand what's going on so that they know when they say this is what we want to happen here, that it's actually happening here and what that looks like. <clears throat> I may be naive here, but I do think we have... We've announced a climate emergency and in my naivety, I think we just simply need to do some stuff better. And I think we need to role model better behaviour from council. And then that role modelling needs to then go through into individuals taking responsibility for their their stance in that space. From their own recycling, from their own choosing what plastics they use and, and just being really clear around how we are impacting on the environment and even for me, I look at all the stuff, like I go, oh, gosh, look at all this plastic, Get, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. But then at the same time, I think to myself, actually, we need to, it's not just plastic, it's, it's methane, it's got to be more considerate around what we're doing there. We, need, we do need to think about public transport as a thing. And I'm one of the world's worst, you know, I'm, how often am I driving around my car? So all of those things, are. Uh, I don't know what that will end up looking like, but it's something we have to do. So where do I stand wholeheartedly? And then, of course, the DHP side of things. Please vote me in on the DHP. I have talked about all the stuff that's driving me to help in this space and then top that off with a fitness background for 20 years where I've been working at the cold face of helping people make change physically. And that's really hard. You know, that's so hard to create good healthy lifestyle for people. So please just let me on the DHB. I really want to be there. And I guess, so yeah, if you wanted to support me, that's sort of, that's where I stand. What I bring is I bring, like I said, a a way to understand complex issues and get it to a point where it's palatable and, and we can action it, which is probably my superpower, a strategic mind, and then this this massive desire, this altruistic desire to want to create change in the world and real change that that leads to a better world for our children and our children's children because I do, I wholeheartedly believe that we have a responsibility to leave this planet better than what we found it and we're not doing that as humans today. We're actually, we are we are making this planet worse for our children and that's not okay. So it's a collective, it's a collective mission. So yeah, vote for me please. It's Comedia, mid Thomas Civilia, I get confused and it's Comedia with a K, not with a C. Yeah, and and then on top of all of that stuff, please be good to you. You know, if you really wanted to help me, help you, because the more we look after ourselves, the better we are as 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 humans. So yeah, incredible. Yeah, I hope you get in. Good luck. All the- <laughs> thank you. Um, I will do my best to rally for you. <laughs> You're awesome. Amazing, You're awesome. and thank you so much for being here and sharing so much really painful raw stuff. I think you're incredible. Oh, you are. Thank yeah. you for thank you for giving me a forum to share it, share it, and and this is actually the first time I've actually truly shared it. So thank you. Oh well. Yeah, outside in the real in the wide world, I haven't. I've kept it in little pockets, and I've you know for those people that 
got the opportunity through different things that I've done in terms of work, but this will be the first time that I've gone public. So thank you for giving me an opportunity to be brave. Amazing. You're awesome. so grateful. Awesome. I'm sending you so much love. Thanks, Ned. Thank you. Bye. And you're awesome. Bye. You're awesome. Bye. Bye. You see ya.